Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. As I first started researching this week's case, it struck me as odd when I realized that it only took place in 2013. This is one of those cases in the true crime community, a case so ingrained into the fabric of the tapestry that makes up the weird and unnerving that fascinates us all so much, it's hard to remember a time before its arrival into our doctrine. It's a case that feels as if it's simply always been around because of how much of a cornerstone it's seemingly become. The name of our victim alone conjures up imagery steeped in strangeness, a prickly kind of unsettledness, a feeling of, what is really going on here? What really happened to Elisa Lamb? Maybe the reason Elisa's death feels so familiar is because we've made it familiar. What with the millions of views, the millions of eyes that have watched one of the last events of her life play out in a disquieting, nonsensical manner countless times across the wide, wild world of the internet. Elisa's case speaks to the idea of the power of the internet, the rapidity of internet subcultures, and even how much influence the internet can have on a case. For as much, or as little, some might argue, that we know about the truth behind how Elisa Lamb came to be found floating face up in a disreputable hotel's rooftop water tank thousands of miles from home, there's still so much that gets lost in translation and that isn't captured in the grainy surveillance tapes from a hotel elevator. This week, I want to tell the full story of Elisa Lamb's case, including her life and not just her inexplicable death that even seven years later, ignites and inspires forums and chat rooms across the world to wonder, what happened to Elisa? Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Elisa Lamb, all of 21 years old in January 2013, was looking for something, a change, a revitalization, a fresh start. She was the daughter of David and Yina, immigrants from Hong Kong who had created a name for themselves in their chosen home of Vancouver as successful restaurateurs. Elisa and her sister Sarah had grown up in Vancouver, and when the time came, Elisa started studying at the University of British Columbia. She loved fashion, admiring haute couture spreads, commenting on trends, and writing about her own style on her blogspot platform, Etherfields. She was a budding feminist, wrote with a quick, sharp edge, and had a wide and easy smile. Her friends spoke of how, quote, caring and conscientious she was known to be towards most anyone she came across. For all of that, though, Elisa was struggling. Writing on her Etherfields blog in January of 2012, Elisa shared these insights into her state of mind and mental health. Quote, I had a relapse at the start of the term and had to drop two of the three courses I was taking. Now I am down to one course and I have missed three weeks of classes since my sleeping pattern is completely reversed. I'm very disappointed in myself for breaking down during the term, forcing me to withdraw from courses. I've been at university for three years, and I've only managed to complete three courses. That means I've been a first year for three years, and this September, it will be for the fourth year, because I require 30 credits in order for second year status. When I cannot fall asleep at night, I'm gripped with the fear that my transcript must be a nightmare. Multiple fails and withdrawals and three years with only three courses completed cannot look good if I intend to continue on to graduate school. I hate myself for not even being able to attend one class. For the bright, witty girl that she was, Elisa harbored a darker, sadder side, as most of us do. However, Elisa's mental health manifested into a two-pronged diagnosis prior to 2013, depression and bipolar disorder. 
The stress of college is no joke, and coupled with fears for her future in the midst of getting her mental health under control, it's easy to understand and empathize with how tough of a year 2012 must have seemed to be for Elisa. She wrote on her blog and Tumblr about various ups and downs she experienced, saying in one blurb that she, quote, spent about two days in bed hating myself, and, quote, so far all I've done is lay on my bed and watch episodes of Chopped. I'm just waiting for it to pass. She wrote of her frustration when it came to regulating her moods and having a grip on them, sharing on her blog that she felt, quote, I have no control over my emotions. I will be angry for two minutes and then sad again. I will be happy for half an hour and then emotional again. And in another post, she simply wrote, quote, Expecto Patronum. Depression sucks. For those who have struggled with depression, I see you and I feel you as someone who was diagnosed myself back in 2014. For those who haven't, Elisa's words do a lot to try to paint a picture of the daily battle, the daily slog that it can feel like. As she worked through the 2012 year, though, she seemed to be on the up and up. She had found a solid medication treatment plan. She was discovering the best strategies to manage her triggers and symptoms. And all in all, by the time January 13, 2013 had rolled around, Elisa seemed to be in a much better spot than she had been just the year before when she had written, quote, it is a weariness that keeps me at a standstill at the end of one of her blog posts. On her Tumblr, which she decided to mainly focus on in late July of 2012, a particular quote by Chuck Palahniuk floated across the top of her blog's homepage. You're always haunted by the idea you're wasting your life. Maybe those words are what inspired her. Because just one year after pouring out her heart online about her struggles with depression, bipolar, and general dissatisfaction with the direction of her life, Elisa Lam shrugged off the weariness keeping her in one place and booked herself a solo trip that would take her throughout sunny, adventure-filled California. No one could tell, though, that it would be her final adventure. On January 13th, Elisa announced her plans to travel by herself down throughout California at the end of the month. She purchased a plane ticket that would arrive in San Diego and had mapped out the Amtrak and bus routes that would wind their way up the state until they reached the end goal of Santa Cruz. For all of the writing and online sharing Elisa did, there's a lot about her journey that we don't know much about. Some reports state that she intended to stop in San Francisco at some point, or even had decided that San Fran would be her final destination. Others mentioned that she'd wanted to stop at San Luis Obispo. Still, more sources claim that, hard and fast, Santa Cruz was Elisa's ideal location to end her journey. And despite the various reports, Santa Cruz was always included in her itinerary. So I believe, to the best of my own deduction and research, that's probably the truest version of her plans as we can get. That said, when Elisa's family learned of her great West Coast tour, as she had taken to calling it, they were worried. For all of the things that had gone unsaid or unexplained about Elisa, we do know that much about her family's opinion of the West Coast tour. Her parents were concerned because, at least once before, Elisa had gone missing. Beyond that, we don't know more details about the incident. Some sources said that there's a reason so much about Elisa is still shrouded in secrecy. They claim that her parents and family at large went to, quote, some lengths to cover up her mental illness. Others even go so far as to say that they made a concerted effort to keep their daughter's mental health struggles a secret entirely. Whether that's because of their desire to protect her memory, protect their reputations, or even a combination of the two, plus who knows how many other factors, we're only left to wonder. But despite all of that, given her relapse the year before, it makes sense that the idea of their daughter taking off on a trip by herself might sound the parental worry alarms. It's unclear if Elisa was on a break from school, either by the academic calendar or of her own volition, but she had paid for the trip herself and she promised that she would be in touch with her parents at the very least once a day during her journey. At 21 years old, there wasn't much else her parents could do to stop her, so they could only acquiesce. It seemed to be Elisa's pattern to write personal posts on her Tumblr during more emotional times, so 
On January 21st, it wasn't a surprise that she took to her online space to share her thoughts about a pre-departure gathering that she had held for some friends. She wrote, quote, I had a catch-up reunion with high school slash elementary people and a sort of bon voyage soiree. I'm fatigued slash exhausted slash in recovery for throwing it and just seeing so many people and doing so many stupid idiotic things in the last four days. But I am so very full of, I suppose the term would be as Dumbledore says, love. Because last night was evidence that I do have amazing, beautiful things in my life. And even though everyone is busy and going off doing great things, they do care about me. I am not a professional depressed person. I am so much more than that, and these people are my reminders that I am very lucky. Life is long and difficult, and people will always be stupid and complain, but it is worth it, so long as you have special moments. There will be a lot of these moments in the future, and there have been a lot in the past. So what if everything is shit and all the plans have gone to hell? If I ask for help, someone might even be willing to spare a hand. Thank you, friends, family, and Tumblr. The world is just awesome. It's a sweet, heartfelt heartwarming even, post from Elisa that shows how, as she put it, she is so much more than her depression. I imagine seeing a group of friends excited for her to take this solo trip did wonders for her, because just two days later, she was off. Elisa's trip began on January 23rd, and admittedly, it got off to a bit of an auspicious start. She was going to begin her trip in San Diego, but as she wrote on Tumblr, she actually missed her connecting flight into the city. In her words, quote, I got lost in the airport and missed my connecting flight. Ugh. Sleepover at the airport again. Oh, well, it could be worse. United Airlines provides blankets. I have Wi-Fi. And I can pretend I'm Tom Hanks in The Terminal. Not at all similar, but surely if a fictional character in a movie can live in an airport, then so can I. So not the best of starts to her journey, but it seemed Elisa would that she was taking it in stride, especially once she did make it to San Diego. She had big plans, both of relaxing and taking in the sights, and it was clear that she intended to make her money stretch during the trip because she wrote about $3 meals for dinner, staying in a hostel, and she made it a point to note that the museum in San Diego was free for her to peruse. On January 25th, she updated her Tumblr following. Quote, Today I slept, took a long hot shower, stuffed myself silly with a $3 dinner. It has been a most productive and enjoyable time. I seriously have done nothing in San Diego that is out of the normal routine at home. I do what I want. After all, I like my home comforts, and every now and then I do something entirely impulsive and reckless, like tell a guy I just met I like him. I do like people watching at the hostel. Now that I'm rested and well, starting tomorrow I should venture outside more. Number one, SeaWorld. Number two, the zoo. Number three, Museum because it's free. Number four, whale watching at Coronado slash Point Loma. I actually love that she took the time to kind of honor her desire to just chill out for parts of the trip while also still going out and exploring as well. She told her family during one of her calls home that she was looking forward to checking out an organic farm. She was still enjoying her $3 dinners and was generally having a relaxing, nonchalant time of things. And then she arrived in Los Angeles. We know for a fact that Elisa arrived in LA on January 26th. And when she did, she checked into the Cecil Hotel. Now, before we go any further, let me tell you about this hotel. Because it has a history. A rather sordid one at that. Now... Most will know the Cecil Hotel because of its connections to Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, but the story of the Cecil and its macabre reputation starts almost from the beginning of the hotel's very existence. The Cecil stands on 640 South Main Street of Los Angeles, a 15-story structure that was first erected in 1924 with the dreams of being a monument to the Beaux-Arts styling of the French. Alabaster statues welcoming guests into the, quote, opulent marble lobby also stood sentry throughout the floors, and massive stained glass windows filtered the LA sunlight into kaleidoscopic shards and hues onto the thick, plush rugs. In 1924, it cost about $1 million to see the Cecil come to life, and in 2020, that's about $14.5 million. 
For all of its opulence and grandeur, the Cecil, though, it never reached the apex of what it strived to be, because just five years into its arrival on the LA scene, the United States plummeted into the Great Depression, and so too did any dreams that its owner, the hotelier, William Banks Hanner, had for the Cecil becoming a destination for tourists and business travelers. There was no place for glamour and luxurious hotels now, especially as the neighborhood surrounding the hotel reflected the downturn the Depression forced upon the area. Soon, the South Main Street area was home to thousands of transient folks and would become L.A.'s Skid Row neighborhood. The Cecil tried to pivot with the times, and it started catering to those, quote, down on their luck, as they said, and started presenting itself as an SRO, Single Room Occupancy Hotel, where soon, hundreds of long-term residents capitalizing on the cheap daily or weekly rents became the clientele. Who's really to say what that undefinable it factor that transformed the Cecil from a glamorous hopeful on the hotel scene to the slightly questionable, certainly fucking dicey establishment that we know it is today, but I will say that descent into diciness started early on in its history. Again, only five years after it first opened its doors. In 1931, the first suicide to take place on the hotel grounds occurred. The victim was a man named W.K. Norton, and he had ingested poison capsules, leaving his body to be found by the hotel staff. The discovery of dead bodies left behind by guests would become sort of a hallmark of the Cecil as the years rolled on. Throughout the 40s and 50s, the Cecil was unceremoniously nicknamed the Suicide because of the number that took place there over the years, many of them winding up on the sidewalk outside of the hotel as guests leaping from windows of various stories up and down the Cecil began to become more frequent. Since 1931 alone, there have been at least 16 suicides known to have been completed at the hotel. There was 27-year-old Pauline Auten, who jumped out of a ninth-floor window on October 12, 1962, also taking out innocent bystander 65-year-old George Dianini when she landed. In 1975, five days before Christmas, a still unidentified woman who had checked in under a fake name was found dead on the second-floor roof of the hotel. It's believed that she leapt from her 12th-floor window, but... No one has ever been able to confirm if she jumped or if she was pushed. Though the Cecil had gained the unsavory reputation of having a number of suicides take place within its walls, that wasn't the only unsettling behavior going on. Violence and otherwise disturbing incidences have cropped up over the years, including prostitution, illicit drug activity, adultery, many murders, and even an incident of infanticide. In September 1944, 19-year-old Dorothy Jean Purcell was a guest at the Cecil along with her boyfriend. At some point during their stay, Dorothy Jean woke up during the night and gave birth to a baby boy that she was allegedly unaware that she'd been pregnant with. According to court documents, quote, thinking the baby was dead, she threw him out of the window and he landed on the roof of an adjacent building. She was subsequently charged with murder when it was discovered what all had taken place, though she was found not guilty by reason of insanity in the new year of 1945. It's been rumored that Elizabeth Smart, the Black Dahlia herself, was seen drinking at the hotel bar in the days before her dismembered body was found in 1947. In 1964, Goldie Osgood, otherwise known as the Pigeon Woman of Pershing Square because she was devoted to protecting and caring for the pigeons who lived in the nearby park, she was found brutally raped and murdered in the room that she'd been renting for a period of time. It was determined that she'd been stabbed, as well as strangled, and suffered a beating before her death as well. Her room had been completely torn apart, though nothing of value appeared to have been taken. And to this day, Pigeon Goldie's murder remains unsolved. And, of course, the Cecil called itself home to not just one serial killer, but two. 
1985, Richard Ramirez, he of the halitosis and Night Stalker nickname, checked into the Cecil while in the middle of his blood-drenched spree. By now, the neighborhood of the Cecil resided in had descended into, quote, total unmitigated chaos, according to Richard Chavez, who owns and operates a bus tour business with a hotel horrors and Main Street Vice package for those looking to discover the seedier sides of L.A. The neighborhood, Chavez says, was so unsettling that the LAPD allegedly refused to make it part of their regular rounds. Quoting Chavez, by 1990, the LAPD wouldn't go into these places. It was like, if we're called in, we'll go, but we're not patrolling. Which is probably why Ramirez had no problem operating under his particular brand of sadism in 85, completely unchecked by anyone at the Cecil. It's been said that he would usually, quote, just dump his bloody clothes in the dumpster at the end of his evening and go in the back entrance. Or, on occasion, just rock up through the lobby in only his underwear or completely naked if he had to. Again, unmitigated chaos. And nobody wanted to be the snitch to call the cops either, so... Christ, it's no wonder why Ryan Murphy based the AHS season of Hotel on this place. In 1991, just six years after Ramirez had been captured, Austrian journalist Jack Unterwerger, and I probably butchered that, arrived in L.A. He was covering a beat focused on L.A. crime and was said to be fascinated by the work of none other than the Night Stalker himself, which might have been the reason that he checked into the Cecil for his stay. With his press credentials, Unterwerger was able to make nice with the LAPD, who brought him on ride-alongs and allowed him to interview cops working in Vice. These connections also allowed Unterwerger a unique opportunity to satisfy another fascination of his. Strangling prostitutes. It was only after three sex workers turned up dead in L.A., all strangled by their own bra with a very distinct ligature tie, did Austrian officials catch wind of this, and they realized with horror that history was repeating itself. It soon came to light that, at 24 years old, Unterwerger had been abusing sex workers for years, and his abuse was found out when he strangled an 18-year-old German national with her own bra. He had been sentenced to life in prison, but he was actually released in 1990 after showcasing behavior befitting a model prisoner for the 15 years that he had served. Upon release, he gained popularity as a TV host and for his journalism work. And one year later... He was roaming the streets of Los Angeles, murdering sex workers once again. In the summer of 1994, Unterwerger was sentenced to life in prison, with no chance of parole this time, by the Austrian court system. That same night, while in police custody, he hanged himself, using the same unique ligature that had been found among all of the others he had strangled before. Sort of death side confession. With such a dark and morbid reputation, you have to wonder, why the fuck did Elisa decide to spend her stay in L.A. at this place? Even if she was bawling on a budget, the Cecil doesn't exactly seem like the most welcoming of establishments for a young 20-something woman traveling on her own. Maybe she checked in as an attempt to meet some new people, which was a unique opportunity that she couldn't really get at another full-time hotel. Since the Cecil had retained its SRO status, there were still long-term residents living in the hotel full-time, but there had recently been developments made before Elisa herself arrived in January 2013. Three of the top floors had been converted into actual hotel rooms, then there were the SRO rooms, and the rest of the hotel was operating as a hostel, more or less. Because of the hostel-like nature, when Elisa checked in on the 26th, she found herself staying in a room on the fifth floor with two other roommates. Personally, I would have hated this arrangement, but given how much Elisa wanted to have an adventure, maybe the situation was right up her alley for how she wanted to act on her West Coast tour. On January 27th, Elisa made two text posts on her Tumblr page. The first, she wrote about her intention to go out that night. By herself, it seems. She wrote, and I want to stress that 
These are her words, not mine. And I don't really condone the racial profiling she does here, but I digress. She wrote, quote, I'm going out tonight. I really hope no creeper come near, comes near me. Seriously, though, those Italian and Mexican guys go after you strong. Show the slightest inclination and they hound you. And the associated hashtags under the post, she wrote in all caps, I just want to listen to some jazz music. God. Apparently, from this post, we can tell, in her first day or so in LA, Elisa had already gotten the unwanted attentions of various men throughout the city. While she shared chunks of her activities and various items of her itinerary in San Diego, we really don't know much about what she did in LA while she was there. Did she see the Hollywood sign? Did she tour the Walk of Fame? Did she take a tour of celebrity houses? We just don't know. We do know, however, how Elisa's time at the local jazz-filled speakeasy was. Quote, The speakeasy was, all caps, awesome. Except I lost my cell phone. Sigh. Another auspicious beginning, as this was only the end of her second day in L.A., she was scheduled to check out on the 31st, so she was heading into the next four days within the City of Angels without a phone, although it wasn't really hers, as she explained in her hashtags at the end of the post. Apparently, a friend of hers had lended Elisa an old Blackberry that they were no longer using, so while she hadn't technically lost any money by losing the phone, that still sucks, and it's still a scary feeling. Finding yourself so phoneless in a new city and one that isn't known to be particularly friendly to solo young women. And, all needs to be said, did Elisa lose the phone herself due to an oversight or misplacing it, or was the phone stolen? If the phone was stolen, that's one thing. Did she lose it herself after maybe one too many drinks? Elisa wasn't known to be a huge drinker, so maybe even just two cocktails at a speakeasy was enough to fuzzy up her brain. Or... Was this lost cell phone an indication of things to come? We know that one of the medications Elisa was on, something that we'll delve into further next week, also helped address ADHD. So, is it possible that she was already showing signs that while on vacation, she was taking a vacation from her medications as well? We next hear from Elisa's Tumblr on January 29th, and it's a bit of an odd post. In it, she announces, quote, I have arrived in La La Land. There is a monstrosity of a building next to the place I am staying. When I say monstrosity, mind you, I'm saying as in gaudy. But then again, it was built in 1928, hence the Art Deco theme. So yes, it is classy, but then since it's LA, it went on crack. Fairly certain this is where Boz Luhrmann needs to film The Great Gatsby. A few things. One, maybe this is Elisa just catching up her Tumblr followers but she had already been in LA for three days at this point. I could be reading too much into it, but I just find it interesting that she's presenting the information on her blog like January 29th was her first day in LA. A second thing, she checked into the Cecil on the 26th. I pulled up Google Maps and I checked out the street view of 640 South Main Street and its surrounding buildings. And the only monstrosity on the street is the Cecil itself. And we know that it had an Art Deco-y vibe and was built in the 20s. So what is Elisa talking about the, quote, monstrosity of a building next to the place I'm staying? Unless something was there in 2013 that isn't there now in 2020, which is entirely fucking likely. I just find the post odd. The other odd thing? Elisa didn't mention that she'd gotten kicked out of her shared room at the Cecil. Vice reported that three days after she checked in, which makes that January 29th, the day that this post was written, Elisa was moved out of the room that she shared with two others and put into a private room by herself. This was confirmed by the Cecil's manager at the time, Amy Price, but she wouldn't confirm it why exactly Elisa was moved. All that's ever been said about what caused the switch was that the two roommates asked for Elisa to be moved. They complained to management that she was exhibiting, quote, odd behavior, but that vague phrase is all that's ever been used to describe what happened between the two other travelers and Elisa. What could Elisa have been doing that was so unsettling to these two that she had to be moved to her own room? No one, 
not Amy Price, not Elise's family, not even the travelers themselves who have actually never been publicly identified or ever come forward. No one has ever illuminated what exactly odd behavior Elisa was showcasing up to the 29th. And we never learned what it was from Elisa herself because that text post on January 29th, it was the last one that she ever wrote. The last known sighting of Elisa Lamb was on January 31st, 2013, two days after her La La Land Tumblr post. Like a lot of the time Elisa spent in LA, we don't know what she did on the 30th or a lot of what she did on the 31st. But we do know that she popped into a bookstore that day and made an impression on Katie Orphan, the manager of the store, which is kind of ominously called the last bookstore. Orphan claims that, unlike the ex-roommates of Elisa's that asked her to be moved to a private room, she wasn't exhibiting any odd behavior. On the contrary, the manager said, quote, she was very outgoing, very lively, very friendly. Apparently, Elisa had picked out records and books, specific choices made for her parents and her sister as souvenirs from her West Coast tour. Orphan said that she chatted with Elisa while she was in the store, quote, talking about, you know, what book she was getting and whether or not she was going, what she was getting would be too heavy for her to carry around as she traveled or to take home with her. It was, after all, supposed to be Elisa's last day in L.A. When she arrived back at the hotel, various hotel employees told investigators that she was alone as she went up to her single room. Ironically, it was still on the fifth floor, despite being kicked out of her original one on the same floor. The first sign that anyone should be worried about Elisa actually came that day. Maybe because a sign never did come. Because... She didn't call her parents. Even in spite of losing her phone on the 27th, Elisa had been diligent about checking in with her parents in the following days. So when she suddenly went radio silent on them, the Lambs raised the alarm with the Los Angeles Police Department. By February 4th, Elisa was officially listed as a missing person by the LAPD. The Lamb family had arrived in LA and the search was on. The city of L.A. is 44 miles north to south, larger than the whole state of Rhode Island, it should be noted, and it's home to almost 4 million people. So to begin a search in the second most populous city in the country for just one woman, that's no small task. And admittedly, the LAPD didn't have an easy go of it. Credit where credit's due, because they did take Elisa's disappearance seriously from the jump, whether that's because she was an international tourist or because of her mental health history, who's to say, but they did begin searching for her almost immediately. The other factor, though, that stymied the police's efforts was the fact that they didn't have official probable cause to believe that any crime had necessarily taken place at the Cecil, so they couldn't conduct a thorough search of the entire hotel. They could only search Elisa's room and key common areas for guests. Room-to-room -room searches, those were barred. One such common area, though, was the roof. As best they could, the police searched the roof and the hotel, trained dogs sniffing away to catch a hit of Elisa's scent. They found none, and there was no sight of her, and no other clues were found. On February 6th, the police released Elisa's image to the public, sending out a press release asking for the public's assistance in locating her. Flyers were posted up and around the Skid Row neighborhood, and the picture of a glasses-wearing, widely smiling Elisa circulated online. Another week of silence went by, though. By February 15th, the LAPD made another plea for the public's health. Unlike any other, dare I say, that's ever been made before, because what the LAPD released this time was a video. Oh yeah, it's time to discuss the video of Elisa Lam in the elevator. If you haven't ever seen the video of Elisa inside the Cecil Hotel elevator, I highly suggest that you do so ASAP, but do not fret. I'm going to relay the whole thing to you here right now as well. 
On February 15th, the LAPD released the video from the surveillance camera inside one of the Cecil's elevators. Recorded on February 1st, the goal, or at very least the hope, was that the video would help jog someone's memory, point police in the right direction, or just otherwise get some more attention on the case. They couldn't have possibly imagined how much attention this video was about to garner them. A few details about the video that you should know beforehand. Quality is not the best, and calling it grainy is a compliment. There's no sound accompanying the video. There are theories that the video has been edited either with entire sections cut out, parts spliced together, or otherwise there have been particular moments cut out for reasons unbeknownst to the public. And finally, we have no idea what time the video was captured because the timestamp is blurred out and the police have never publicly stated what time it was taken. Quoting from the Wikipedia breakdown as applied from the police report, this is what you see on the almost four minute long video of Elisa in the elevator. Quote, in the clip, the camera at one of the elevator's cab's rear corners looks down from the ceiling, offering a view not just of its interior, but the hallway outside as well. At the start, Elisa enters, clad in a red zippered hooded sweatshirt over a gray t-shirt with black shorts and sandals. She enters from the left and goes to the control panel, bends down, appears to select several floors, and then steps back to the corner. After a few seconds during which the door fails to close, she steps up to it, leans forward so her head is through the door, looks quickly in both directions, and then quickly steps back in, backing up to the back wall, sliding to the right side, and then into the right corner near the control panel. The door remains open. She walks through it again and stands in the doorway, leaning on the side. Suddenly, she steps out into the hall, then to her side, back in, looking to the side, and then back out. She then steps sideways again, and for a few seconds, she's mostly invisible behind the wall she has her back to just outside. The door remains open. Her right arm can be seen going up to her head, and then she turns to re-enter the cab, putting both hands on the side of the door. She then goes to the control panel, presses many more buttons, some more than once, and then returns to the wall she had come into the elevator from, putting both hands over her ears again, briefly as she walks back to the section of wall she'd been standing against before. The door remains open. She turns to her right and begins rubbing her forearms together, then waves her hands out to her sides with palms flat and fingers outstretched while bowing forward slightly and rocking gently. This can all be seen through the door, which remains open. She backs to the wall again and walks away to the left, out of view and away. The door remains open. After 30 seconds, though, it finally closes. What freaks me out the most watching this is the part towards the end when Elisa steps outside of the elevator and she starts waving her arms and hands around. Her fingers are stretched out wide in a really horrifically reminiscent manner to salad fingers, and I cannot fucking believe that salad fingers is being used as a reference on this show. All that said, she just looks odd, unnaturally so. The rocking, the jittery quick movements, the hiding up against the walls, the whole thing is just incredibly unsettling to watch. And it was all the more unsettling for the LAPD because despite releasing the video and despite it racking up over 3 million views on the first week of it hitting the World Wide Web, no one could come forward with any hint about what happened to Elisa after she left the elevator. Elisa was supposed to have checked out of the hotel on the 31st, so what was she still doing there on what we can assume is the early morning hours of the 1st? 
the police and Elisa's family could only wonder, where had she gone? No one ever thought to ask another question, though. The question of, did Elisa ever even leave the Cecil at all? Sabina and Michael Bogg, a couple visiting the U.S. from all the way across the pond in England, were not happy. They checked into the Cecil on February 12th, and from the start of their time at 640 South Main Street, they noticed that the water supply to their room was strange. Strange, though the history of the Cecil is, that didn't explain the drastically fluctuating levels of water pressure when one or the other went to take a shower, or the fact that the water they did get appeared to be black. Quote, The shower was awful, Sabina told reporters at CNN. When you turned the tap on, the water was coming black first for two seconds, and then it was going back to normal. Now, if... I was seeing black water come out of my shower, I'd be breaking the little dinghy bell on the front desk of reception asking them to figure out what the hell is going on, if not get an upgrade. The bogs, though, for the first week of their stay, they didn't make any complaints. Quote, we never thought anything of it, Sabina said. We thought it was just the way it was here. In what world is black water coming out of your shower simply the way of things and more so to that point even if you're content to be blase blase about the water pressure why wouldn't you complain about that and certainly more to the fucking point why would you drink this said water because oh yes the bogs drank the water coming into their room sabina's husband michael said quote the tap water tasted horrible. It had a very funny, sweetie, disgusting taste. It's a very strange taste. I can barely describe it. The box weren't the only ones in the Cecil noticing stranger than usual things going on either, especially when it came to matters of the water. Around the time Elisa was last seen, as all of these searches were going on, guests reported flooding on the fourth floor. A self-described longtime resident, Bernard Diaz, was one of them, and he also said that, in that same time frame, during the last few days Elisa had been seen, quote, he heard a thump so loud one night, he fell out of bed. It's unclear what finally prompted the Cecil to take action, but finally, on February 19th, a maintenance employee by the name of Santiago Lopez was dispatched to the roof of the Cecil. It was time to take a look at the water tanks and see what the guests were complaining about. According to a police report, there are only four ways to get onto the roof of the Cecil Hotel. Three of them are fire escapes, and the final one is through an interior staircase from the 14th floor up through the 15th and onto the roof. This rooftop access door has a specific alarm system set up to alert the front desk and the 14th and 15th floor from how loud it is, whenever the door has been opened. The alarm can only be disabled by a key that only the maintenance staff handles. So it was that Santiago Lopez wound his way through the Cecil and climbed up the staircase connecting the 14th floor to the roof. The roof itself is, kind of obviously, pretty large, and there are four water cisterns on top of it. Calling them cisterns is kind of quaint because these containers hold a thousand gallons of water pumped in from a main water line 15 stories below. Each container is about 10 feet high and 6 feet wide and requires you to climb two separate ladders just to get to the top of them. The platform that they sit on top of is actually 4 feet up from the roof itself and then, as described in a 2015 deposition, quote, to access the tanks, someone would have to climb a ladder up the platform and then squeeze through the tanks and plumbing equipment to reach another narrow ladder and climb up the side of the 10-foot tank. Me, myself, I don't fuck with heights when they're in a free-falling kind of capacity. Chaos is a ladder, ladders are chaos, it goes both ways. Lopez, though, he had been working for the hotel since 2010, so he was familiar enough with the jungle system of these tanks to know which one serviced the hotel directly. Because 
Not only did these tanks distribute to the Cecil's rooms, but also to its kitchen and a neighboring coffee shop as well. Knowing his way around, Lopez climbed up onto the platform that the four cisterns were constructed on and then headed over towards the main tank. That's when he started to get a bad feeling. Because when Lopez caught the full view of the main tank, he saw something strange. As strange as the Cecil itself. According to a 2015 deposition, Lopez said that what he saw was that the hatch to the main water tank. And it was open. The bad feeling intensified as Lopez, who must have had a suspicion about what he was about to see, crept over to the open hatch and looked down. From his deposition, quote, he looked inside. It was there he found Elisa's body floating in the tank. For three weeks now, the search for Elisa had been conducted throughout the city of LA. But in reality, she never left the hotel that she had never even checked out of. And even though Elisa had finally been found, the hashtag questions were only just beginning. It's here on this beautiful little cliffhanger that I leave you friends, at least for this week. I told you I wanted to tell you the full story of Elisa Lamb and Christ, do we still have a lot to discuss? From the investigation that kicked off after her body was found, the suggestion that that same investigation wasn't done thoroughly, the delayed autopsy report, the conspiracies, the theories, the questions, and of course, we're going to talk about a little something called the elevator game. From all that, we really are diving deep into just what did happen to Elisa Lamb. I'll leave you with a few hashtag questions to ponder, though, before we pick up next week. Number one, what did Elisa want to accomplish while in California? Why did she go on this trip in the first place? Why are there so few details about how she spent her days while in San Diego and LA? Elisa arrived in LA on the 26th, but her Tumblr post on the 29th seems to suggest that she spent her first night somewhere other than the Cecil. If she did, where was she? Who was she with and what did she do? And if she really did check into the Cecil on the 26th, then why did her post seem to suggest that she hadn't? Who were the men bothering her on the first few days in LA? Were they other Cecil residents? Did anything noteworthy happen to Elisa at the speakeasy? How did she lose her cell phone? If she didn't misplace it herself, was it stolen? What was the quote odd behavior that she was said to be exhibiting to the two other people she was sharing a room with when she first checked into the Cecil? Who are these two other people and why have they never come forward? And more to that fact, why wouldn't they have elaborated about the odd behavior? What did Elisa do in LA on the 30th and on the 31st when she wasn't at the bookstore? When it comes to the elevator, what floor was it when Elisa actually got onto the elevator? What floors did Elisa originally select when she got onto the elevator in that first round of pushing the buttons? Why was she variously hiding in corners or against the walls of the elevator? What meaning is there to the strange arm movements, the bowing and the rocking that she did when she stepped outside of it? Was the elevator malfunctioning and that's why the doors didn't shut? Was Elisa trying to make the door shut with all this movement and then hiding? But then why was she looking down the hallways at various times in the video? Was she hiding from someone? What time did all of this happen and why won't the police confirm it? Why didn't she check out of the hotel on the 31st? And how didn't anyone from the hotel notice? Which begs the question, was she already dead on the 31st? Santiago Lopez claims that the hatch was open on the main water tank in a 2015 deposition. That's not the story that has circulated before, which we'll discuss more next week. But for now, I'm asking, which version of events is the truth? If the hatch was open, how didn't anyone notice during the LAPD search? If the hatch wasn't open, 
why did Lopez change his story? And furthermore, if it wasn't open, who closed the hatch? It's the month of weird and spooky and unsettling, friends. This is a story that has all of those elements, and we are just getting started. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'll be back here next week with more of Elisa Lamb's hashtag question loaded story to tell you. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest member of the DAW Patreon crew, Jana Osterhart. Your support truly means the world, so thank you for becoming a member of the DAW Spooky Crew over on Patreon. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level, and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work I do here for just $1 a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. This month's calendar of exclusive Patreon content for all of the different levels is extra amounts of dark as hell. I don't want to spoil anything, but if you're looking to fill your October with extra daw and extra spook, head on over to patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast to check it all out. We also have a dark as hell Facebook group now, so feel free to search and join the group. All that I ask is please answer the entrance questions. We've decided a group of us to actually read a book together this month, I'm loath to say that it's a book club, but again, just all sorts of extra dark as hell content. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find dark as hell on Instagram at dark as hell podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at dark as hell pod. Again, that's all one word too. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or questions of your own over to me at dark as hell podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to conclude our story about Elisa Lamb's mysterious death, and I'll be ready to get dark as hell all over again. Yeah.